0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the United States and around the world in the ministry of the gospel. Hello, welcome. Well, we're starting. I'm excited because it's the beginning of the semester. It's fall 2023, and we're starting in a new series. We've just wrapped up our series on the fruit of the spirit. We're all feeling very gentle and self-controlled. And now we're moving on to a new topic, which uh, is actually going to be a variety of topics, a kind of anthology of topics that we're calling tough texts. Okay. This is going to be our tough text series. We're going to do this for a while, and I suspect we'll probably come back around to this series down the road and add to it over the the course of the future of this podcast. But what we want to focus on in this tough text series is texts that have been brought to us uh, as problematic in some way. Now there's a variety of ways in which texts can be problematic, of course, in the Christian church and for an individual believer who's reading it. Um, But when, um, when the, we're going to be talking about texts in scripture that either are confusing paradoxical, seemingly contradictory. Okay. That's going to be on one side or are problematic. I I think I know what it means. I just don't like what it says, right? Because of my own modern sensibilities, my own fears, desires, hopes, and dreams. And what we want to do is approach these different texts, these tough texts and talk through how we might read them today. Okay, so we want to recognize that the Bible isn't always as clear as we might like it to be, and it always doesn't fit well with our own dreams and desires, okay? And yet we still need to talk about these texts and understand um, what they mean. Now, this is important for us because, honestly, if this was just another ancient Near Eastern book, It wouldn't really matter, would it? If I'm reading Gilgamesh and I read about Gilgamesh and Enkidu running into scorpion men on the side of the ocean, that doesn't bother me because I don't believe in scorpion men, right? Um, However, this is not Gilgamesh. This isn't Atrahasis. This isn't Anuma Elish. This is God's word, God's uh, holy word to us, which we believe here at RTS is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And for that reason, it's authoritative, it's reliable, and we we should understand it as inerrant. Okay, but that's just me, a biblical theologian, talking about uh, the inspiration of Scripture. So let me pass it over to a true expert, uh, Grace Utanto. What what have I left out, and how can we, how should we understand the inerrancy of Scripture?
1: No, that's exactly right, and it's a great starting point. And it's really difficult to talk about inerrancy in isolation because. Oftentimes, when we think about inerrancy, we think about a kind of mechanical sort of dictated way of understanding what the Bible means and what it intends to affirm. So the doctrine of inerrancy technically refers to plenary verbal inspiration, that every word in the Bible has been inspired by God. Every word in the Bible is exactly what God intends to communicate to us, and that it is inerrant, it is without error, and we have to affirm it, especially in all that it intends to affirm. So it's quite a loaded statement there. In other words, we have to make sure that when we hold on to inerrancy, we're also recognizing the different genres of the scriptural texts. We're recognizing that it's an ancient text and not a modern text. It's not like a scientific manual in the modern sense. And so, for instance, when you take a look at the Psalms, in what way are some of the Psalms, which is poetic literature, literary, literary uh, sorry, literally true? in a way that is distinct from, let's say, historical documents or in a way that is distinct from the Gospels, which is an ancient form of biographical writing, right? We have to take into account all those different considerations. We should also take into account the differences between a historical narration or description versus something that is normative or something that is prescriptive, right? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, Exodus 20, the revelation of the Ten Commandments, that's a very prescriptive text. And the Reformed tradition would understand that as a codification of natural law that's normative for us. But it's very different than, let's say, Abraham selling Sarah out, right? Or the polygamy of Solomon or something like that. Just Just,
0: because the story's in there doesn't mean it's it's normative.
1: Right. Right. So inerrancy says God intends to communicate that this thing did happen with Solomon. But inerrancy doesn't mean that, therefore polygamy is actually something normative for every Christian today or something like that.
0: Yeah, and, that, and it's not sometimes, right, the narrator comes in and says, and it was wrong, really, exactly. you know, like in the, in the case of the histories, and, the, and that was not good in the eyes of the Lord. Right. or Sometimes he doesn't sometimes, he doesn't, sometimes it's more indeterminate, and we have to remember that it could be, this could be a positive thing, right,
2: or it might not be. And the indeterminate aspect of that might also be, well, is also inerrant, that yeah. God intends this to be left at yeah. our sort of hermeneutical
0: right process. Yeah, I th- I, we talk in class about don't say less than the Bible says, but also don't say more than the Bible says. Right. No.
1: And and just as a preface to all this, we have to remember that the doctrine of inerrancy is not a modern evangelical construct. I hear that all the time, yeah, right? especially in social media and popular media, that inerrancy, this idea that the Bible has no errors is just a modern sort of um, uh, imposition on an ancient text and ancient people didn't think of it that way and so on. Well, The ancient church didn't think of it that way and so on. That's just not true. So in class here, when we covered the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy, um, I read a passage from St. Augustine in a particular letter. He says, when I encounter a difficult passage that seems to be apparently in error, I have to rule out two possibilities. I have to rule out that um, God here has made a mistake. That's not Mm -hmm. possible. And I have to rule out that there is an actual contradiction. That's the second thing that he rules out there is no actual contradiction in the bible and there is no possibility that god has made a mistake so he immediately attributes the biblical text to the divine author god wrote it so there's no mistake there's no actual contradiction so what's going on when i encounter an apparent difficulty augustine says either i have not understood the text or i've gotten a wrong translation Mm -hmm. or i've gotten a wrong copy or a manuscript but the original document he argues has to be exactly what god intended so, therefore, no contradiction, no actual error. So, yeah. the, the ancient church actually regarded the Holy Scripture with this sort of holy reverence because they understood the yeah. divine author. Let me just read as well really quickly Second Peter 1, 21, where the doctrine of divine inspiration is really clearly laid out. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, even though all the prophets were men. But men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the holy spirit that mm. sense here is that there is a diversity of human authors diversity of human prophets who spoke the word of god yeah but the source of it the ultimate source of it is actually the holy spirit who carried along this men. and so from a text like this thinkers like bb warfield abraham Kuyper had coined the term organic inspiration that god didn't just use these men as um a mere pen or as an instrument actually the church fathers thought about it more in that sort of uh, way but, but rather, God takes up providentially these people with their personalities, histories, and styles, and purposes, and uses them, carries them along, alongside them, concurrently with them, such that they produce exactly what God intends them to communicate while preserving their distinct styles, personalities, histories, and contexts, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so looking at the historical intention and historical style and personalities and, and purposes does not actually contradict divine inspiration. We don't believe in a kind of unilateral divine authorship that rules out human authorship we actually see that there's a consonance, a concurrence between the two of them and we need to respect that concurrence and so we shouldn't expect the bible to be like our own expectations or that we shouldn't bypass human authorial exploration in the doctrine of divine inspiration yeah and in,
0: that's brilliant but to, to put it in kind of practical terms, you know, we don't believe in the Bible. The Bible doesn't portray its prophets as going into trances and just saying words that they have no concept of, right? right? Um, It doesn't depict um, the text descending out of heaven without any authorial hand in it. And so when we talk about organic inspiration, I think sometimes Christians don't get all the implications of this. This is our biblical faith. This is a unique thing in our biblical faith. We shouldn't be surprised that jeremiah doesn't sound like isaiah that moses doesn't sound like jesus that peter doesn't sound like paul they have different voices jeremiah is the weeping prophet right and he's not like isaiah who's a little bit more enfranchised and kind of can walk right into the king's court whenever he wants to all right i mean these are different men they're serving in different periods of time they have different interests they have different fears and hopes and dreams and they have different literary styles as well and so as you mentioned with genre when we're doing this question of what is intended in the text we, we 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 are not bleaching out the author and yet as that quote you just read was so great um they're through men uh the word is the words are coming through men but they are inspired by god and as a result even though we have a diversity of voices a diversity of times cultures places languages um we have one word of god
3: yeah i think it's also important because everything you're saying is true uh that, you know, Isaiah will not sound like Paul or Paul will not sound like Moses. Uh, what's also, I think, uh, affirming is that I, Isaiah will sound like the other men like him of his day, mm-hmm. that Moses mm-hmm. will sound like the other law writers of his day because mm-hmm. they were influenced by the tools that were available to him. So yeah. it, and it's interesting how uh, you know, some of God's people are, are kind of bothered by that. Uh, that the Bible kind of looks like uh like you know like the Ten Commandments kind of looks like ancient treaty documents mm-hmm. uh they shouldn't be surprised by mm-hmm. that, nor should they be bothered by that, in fact, it just affirms all the more the organic nature of scripture and how the whole and the second Peter passage that you read uh, uh great, because it just affirms exactly that idea that the Lord, the Spirit inspired these men, these writers um. Carry them along uh, that carried and where they used the tools and the styles of writing that were available to them. And so, uh, if anything, it, not only do they not um, uh, sound like uh, you know the Old Testament won't sound like the New. The Old Testament men will write and sound like others within their extracurricular or extra surrounded areas. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly.
0: That actually, that that for me adds. Uh, it is an encouragement because you see God revealing himself. I think it's actually, I think this is, this makes the Bible better if it were, if I could if I could say it that way, yep. it's God revealing himself in a variety of different cultural contexts, personal situations. There's times of weeping, times of victory, times of celebration, times of lack and absence, scarcity. Um, we get God revealing himself in all of these different contexts, and we see his unity, we see his uniformity, right, his his, his his aseity across the ages, but in all these different contexts. And what does that do that helps speak into all the different contexts and situations in which we are also called to serve and mm-hmm. worship the Lord?
2: Yeah, and I agree that, that make, that's actually one of the things that makes the Bible better. It's a value that we have is that our God actually cares about He doesn't care about us in abstract. He cares about the actual historical Mm -hmm. nature, uh, the outworking of all of these things as they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he respects the cultural conditions that we're in. This this arises out of historical process. It doesn't, it isn't dropped down as it's sometimes put um, Mm. from heaven. And so there is this kind of integrity to the scriptural witness. But it's precisely that that makes it, and I think this is kind yeah. of our point with, with inerrancy, that sets us, inerrancy in our doctrine, and pr- particularly that, as it's well-defined by Gray, that plenary inspiration sets us on a hermeneutical trajectory that we wouldn't otherwise be on. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were just ancient Near Eastern scholars, just, just using the text as a window into history, and that's all we cared about, then it really doesn't matter that Joshua seems to contradict uh, Moses, or that Paul seems to be preaching a different religion than Jesus. Those questions don't matter for the pure historian. They matter for us because we believe in this doctrine of, iner- we believe that this is from God, and that God is both speaking to them and to us. And that right. sets us on this interpretive process right. of, okay, it looks like Paul and Jesus are using different words to talk about salvation, or James and Paul maybe have a different view of works, how do I assess that? What do I do? Because at the end of the day, you know, it's Augustine's point, they can't contradict, mm-hmm. and they're both for me, but what this is all for me. right? And so those kinds of questions a pure, we might say, historian doesn't have to deal with. We have to do the hard work of theology, and that means often wrestling with these texts in a different way with different tools and with a different intent than, say, a pure historical analysis.
1: Yeah, it's in continuity with the historian. We don't want to deny that historical analysis is helpful and even necessary, right? So, in other words, the biblical scholar who's a Christian is going to come to the text looking at the historical evidences and investigation as actually necessary but not sufficient for reading the biblical text well. Um, And so, historical analysis, to repeat, is not a hindrance or um, an obstacle for inerrancy. And I think oftentimes we need to remind our our listeners of that because oftentimes you're going to hear people say, what do you mean God wrote it? Obviously, these are 66 different books. These are different men who's writing it. And they're obviously fallible men. They're actually bringing in a lot of different assumptions there. They think that if the Bible is errant and inspired, it has to be that God wrote a monochrome uniform text that dropped out of heaven. Mm -hmm. That's a theological assumption. Why should we believe that? Mm Um, And they also assume that um, just because men are fallible, God has no capacity or ability to bring it about concurrently, that in the moment of writing that God intends these men to write exactly what they would write. That's, again, another theological um, assumption. And, And Tommy, what you said there is that, Basically, if you believe in the doctrine of inspiration, and therefore the concomitant doctrine of inerrancy, it creates an opportunity for increased profundity with respect to reading the yes. biblical text. Because you're not just gonna be flipping about it, just because it doesn't fit your categories, or expectations, you're not just gonna dismiss it. You're gonna to have to think, maybe there's something wrong with my categories. Maybe there's something wrong with the way in which I'm approaching the text. And that also, I think, um, puts biblical studies within and alongside the work of humanities and reading classical literature in general. Mm -hmm. We live in a time where the STEM sciences, where the STEM sciences seem to be dominating the university disciplines and humanities and the liberal arts are in great decline. And that's a great danger because it creates and fosters a kind of impatience with ancient literary documents and with primary sources. It doesn't just impact biblical studies by the way it impacts philosophy it impacts islamic studies because people are going to go to texts like plato and aristotle and the quran and the bible and they're going to read it with a quote-unquote common sense literal reading which all they mean by that is my own 21st century sensibilities Mm -hmm. which have not been formed well which have not been critically reconsidered and they're going to come to the text and they're going to say i don't understand this therefore it's a bad text that's just a bad reading right you don't you don't go to Shakespeare and say Shakespeare is bad just because I don't understand it right in the same way you don't go to ancient texts and think that it's bad so let me just mention one more thing here Hugh Goddard in his history of Christian-Muslim relations is commenting on the rise of Islamic extreme uh sort of radical violence among especially western Europeans and Americans and the rise of extreme violence and extremism among these groups is, he says, due to the fact that they were not trained to read literary documents well. They were not trained in the humanities. They were not trained in liberal arts. So a lot of these extremist ideologies actually get a lot of fodder among scientists, educated uh, technicians, um, precisely because they are now reading the Quran, for instance, or the Hadith, immediately on their iPhone without any training on how to read these texts. Mm -hmm. And so they take it, quote unquote, literally, and then they apply it, quote unquote, literally, right? So the danger there is, is is that we tend to impose our own expectations on the biblical text, and so we come to it in a flat-footed way without recognizing, like how to read other ancient sources, that we have to actually reconsider our own assumptions and our own methods, and we don't tend to do that. We need to be self-critical. We're taught not to be self-critical. We're taught to just assert.
2: Yeah, I think that I don't want this to be lost because that, that's so much good stuff there, but, you know, that... It's not that we're not doing historical work. We are. It's not a this instead of that, mm-hmm. you know, divine meaning, instead of human authorial meaning. We're, we're doing the history and that that extra theological later. It's a both and, and that, that's not limiting. It's actually, and I love the way you put it, Gray, It's actually develops a profundity of the text. Mm-hmm. I'm actually asking questions of the text. I have this set of tools to use um, in the text that... A kind of like what I'm calling a pure historian, doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm able to ask a set of theological, practical, pastoral questions because I believe that the text is both something that's profound for them mm-hmm. in their own historical context, and, you know, James, Revelation, these books written for these churches, and it also means something for me. So I'm not just a historian, I'm also a churchman. And that that combination actually creates a hermeneutical, interpretive, theological profundity.
0: I, mean, I think that distinction is felt in our human relationships, right? I mean, we we, we see this is human language. The Bible is human language. It's, it's, it's not beyond that uh, it, it communicates in the way the human language operates with all of that, those limitations as well. You can only say as much as you can say. However, it's, it's not just in the words and in the grammar, but it's in, you know, uh, as we know, linguistics is more than just lexicon and syntax. It's, it's pragmatics, it's prosody, it's, it's, it's poetry. Um, and there's also, a big part of pragmatics is there's this relational element to it. Right. So we're making that distinction. I mean, I think there's an analogy here. Sometimes people go, Oh, well, I, I don't do anything. I I don't treat anyone the way that you say I would, you should treat God's word and be like, actually we kind of do right. I mean, we have personal relationships where we do this all the time. The most hardened historian, you know, and and by the way, this is not to make an opposition against history, but just a distinction. Most ardent historian, hopefully when he goes home to his spouse, right. (laughs) Um, He hears the spouse like I like I hear my wife when I go to her and she says, I love you. I don't go well. I'll check on that later with some other sources. Right. I mean, she has she has won a place in my heart. Right. She she has uh, she's proven herself time and time again. And I engage with her in that way. Like I do with my children, like I do with my friends, like I do with colleagues. Okay. Now this is an analogy. It's not the same thing, but it's an analogy. And I think we have to remember that when we're going to scripture, I'm not walking in there with my ruler pulled out to check and see if it, if it does it all right. Right. When I walk into scripture, I walk in as a pupil walking in before a teacher who's proven himself over and over again to be wiser than me and to know more than me. Um, who's proven himself over and over again to know things that I don't know and to be able to actually lead me out of out of falsehood into truth, right? It's, it's not even just, I mean, better than a pupil and a teacher, really is a, I'm coming in before the king, right? The king of the cosmos, the one who made it all and therefore his authority is without question. And yeah, people go, well, that sounds fideistic. Well, I mean, all, you know, all, all human communication is fideistic in the way that you're kind of saying that, but no, this is, this is This is something that's been proven true over and over and over again to me, and I'm absolutely convinced of this thing, yeah you know, to it's, be the case.
2: It's not fideistic. It's a hermeneutics of of of
3: humility.
0: yeah, yeah absolutely.
3: As we were talking, uh, I was reminded, um, you know, this is a, an important year for the OPC regarding Jake Gresham Machen, as you know, because of the hundredth year publication of Christianity and Liberalism. So I have a lot of Machen going through in my head, but I was just reminded of a statement Machen once made. Not in Christianity and liberalism, um, but actually, I think it was a comment to his mother, who was afraid for him and his faith when he was studying in Europe under uh, Hermann, where he said, "If Orthodoxy is going to vindicate itself, it will o- it will do so because fair study has vindicated it." And I've always appreciated that idea. He wasn't afraid to take on these questions. You know, he was he was confident in the text of Scripture and and. Uh, the historic uh, 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 claims of, of our Christian doctrine, and he was ready to take on the uh, hard questions that were being asked, because he knew that orthodoxy would still win out the day, and that it wouldn't, be do, it wouldn't do so if we just turn a blind eye. He was willing to take on and think through this intellectually and academically, because he knew it still would stand that test and, and be, 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 uh, be clear.
2: I think there's a positive side of that too, and the profundity and point, and then your point, Peter, is that we don't need to be with these tough texts. Tough texts. We don't need to be afraid of them. Like the, you're even even if you're willing to investigate, you know, head coverings and the, um, you know, historical nature of Israel and all of these kinds of things, that you do so kind of immediately from the stance of, I've got to prove the text true and not explore some of the you know, really difficult historical challenges associated right, with that. Right. But this is, if this is true, if inerrancy is true, then I get to both, I, I can be more productive. I can be more constructive in my approach. I'm not trying to prove the text is true. I'm trying to see the deeper meaning in the text That maybe that I don't have access to. the text is fine.
3: We just need to be wise and learn it to appreciate it.
2: So I can study it now without fear of like disproving my faith.
1: And unless somebody says here, well, you're just going to apply that hermeneutic of humility and faith because it's your Bible. And so you're a Christian and you believe in it. Well, actually, I want to challenge you to think, actually, with regard to any text, we should actually approach that text with a hermeneutic of humility, right? In other words, so, you know, I teach Christian thought and philosophy here One of the first things I see to the class is that learning the history of philosophy helps cultivate a sense of humility and patience because, for instance, you're reading Descartes' meditations, and Descartes brings up this possibility and argument that we were all deceived by an evil demon all our lives, and yet Descartes' text is the most influential modern text at that period at the time, and even still now we're studying it. Like, what's up with that? How did this demon idea become incredibly influential right or leibniz and his monadology right he doesn't think that tables are actually tables he thinks that tables are composed of a million number of monads who decided to get there and that if you destroy the tables because the monads actually decided to disperse as well i'm simplifying but that was also influential hume argued that like you don't know the future (laughs) you can't possibly know whether or not the sun is going to rise tomorrow you don't possibly know whether or not when one billiard ball hits another whether that billiard ball will move or whether it would just stay or whether it would just fly off or something like that. And yet that too became incredibly um, influential. Like Kant read Hume and thought, oh, finally, I was awakened from my dogmatic slumbers. Like, I. But when we read Hume and Descartes now, we're like, this is ridiculous. Obviously we know that tomorrow the sun is going to rise. Obviously we know that we're not being deceived by demons, at least I hope we know that, right? Mm-hmm. But, but why were these texts influential? And if you come to those texts and think to yourself, well, I know better. I'm a modern person. I'm westernized or whatever else. You're never going to really understand what they were trying to get at in those passages. You're never going to understand why they were so influential. And you're never going to understand why you too were influenced by these texts, by the Descartes' demons, in a way that you pri- probably never have anticipated, that you were formed by these previous generations.
3: There's a similar thing that we run into with historical critical scholarship that, you know, The the, the claims that are made, particularly in a lot of the deconstruction of the Old Testament, uh, as sort of a uh, conservative response, has always been, you know, they're so clearly wrong. You know, why even read this? Why even study this? Uh, When I think we forget there's a reason, the men who made these conclusions, or the scholars, excuse me, that made these conclusions did so for a reason. Uh, And we need to appreciate why they did that. They weren't stupid, you know, they weren't foolish. Uh, but they looked at the evidence that was available. They looked at the text. They looked at what was influencing, and this is what they concluded. Now, yeah. we can say that they were wrong, uh, but I don't think it would be uh, proper to say that they were dumb or yeah. something like that, and it just doesn't show an appreciation of what they were working with and what was available to them.
2: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think there's some great stuff there for like how we approach these these challenging texts. On the one hand, we we should— pay to, to the scholarly community the same humility that we have when it comes to approaching Scripture. I don't assume that they're idiots or God-haters, or, you know, this, this happens a lot in Gospels. Like, Q must be some sort of imaginary, crazy invention of scholarship. And while I don't think that there is a Q, the questions that these, you know, uh, usually German scholars are asking, they're real questions and they need an answer. And so even though their answer might be wrong, I can now explore the question in a way that is respectful of inerrancy and things like that. So I, you know, as, as you and Gray are saying, I can humble myself and find in folks that disagree with me uh, new ways of interpreting texts and get to new knowledge about what these texts says. On the other hand, uh, we have to do that with scripture. You know, we, we have to have the humility, um, and I think the good presuppositions of the inerrancy of the text to do that kind of work.
0: Yeah. So when we're approaching these issues, I think one thing we're all really emphasizing is that we can approach these issues, these difficult texts, with confidence. We can approach them. I've even found too, Tommy, like you said. I found sometimes it's it's coming to these hard questions that scholars have raised about a particular text or a particular issue. Coming to those questions with a high view of the text actually increases my understanding and depth of understanding in the text. It it, incre- it increases my experience with the text to to deal with those issues that arise. Now, there's a whole variety of issues out there that do arise because of the fact this is, for instance, in human language, right? So it's got the limitations of human language. Um, uh, The scripture doesn't speak beyond what human language says. And so we're limited in that way. And we have to recognize there's all kinds of different levels. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just basic. Like we don't know what the word means. Okay. It's a word that we've only got so many words in the Hebrew Bible or in the Greek new Testament. And we don't always know what those words mean. And no, you can't just look at comparative or cognate text or cognate languages and get the answer. Sometimes it gives you the answer. Sometimes it doesn't. So there's that limitation when we're going to the text. Sometimes we just aren't quite sure what the word means. Um, but there's other cases too. We have to remember these are, you know, if Moses writes the Pentateuch and you go from Moses to let's say Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah when that's being the t- telling accounts from 5th century B.C. You know, we're talking about 800 years or so. We're talking about a long period of time. Language changes. Concepts change. Cultures change. Um, in Nehemiah 8 we see Ezra reading the law and Right there, he says, in, and the elders had to go out and make sense of the text to the people. And that could be that they were just interpreting it for them. It could also be that they were translating it to this audience that wasn't acquainted with old Mosaic Hebrew after having been in exile for all of those years. So we have to recognize, even within the book, there's kind of a cross-cultural, cross-linguistic thing that's happening. And we get to, oh, there's one thing I love about it, we get to see the prophets, we get to see the scribes, we get to see the G- Jesus of the apostles interacting with the text and doing a very similar kind of work to the work that we're doing today trying to understand it within its linguistic context and that context can include all kinds of things so we're going to run into some issues right away when we start talking about difficult texts I think we're going to handle a couple from Genesis perhaps next week. we're gonna run into questions like, what do you do when the author is writing about an event that took place a long time before him? And so he's using modern language to him, contemporary language for him, that would have been you know, anachronistic for the event that he's describing, right? Um, you know, Kind of like if I were to teach Sunday school and say, well, this took place in Southern Babylon, you know, around Basra, Iraq, right? That's a neologism as they say, I'm using modern day language to talk about an ancient thing. Um, Biblical texts can do that Biblical text can also introduce archaism Sometimes they'll talk about something kind of old In order to sort of give it the historical credibility I think of Saul looking for his donkeys And his friend says, hey, let's go see the roe And then our author of Samuel says Back in those days, they called the prophet the seer They called the Navi the roe right? Because he's giving a little archaism in there He's telling his language has changed But this is how they used to say things, okay? It's interesting to me how many times you'll see a scholar or someone else a skeptic about the scripture pull out one of those neologisms or those archaisms and say see the bible's not errant you know it's, it's the bible is not inerrant it's it, it has errors in it i go no actually that's just how humans talk and that's mm-hmm. yeah that's that, not a thing that's not a problem yeah. that's just kind of that's language so get used to it so you've got those kind of issues We've also got other issues that are kind of are, are kind of quasi or sublinguistic like shared knowledge we have to remember we're talking to people or reading in on people who are writing in very different cultures and there's just different shared cultural knowledge and memory and we don't get access to all of that we don't have their whole inventory of cultural literacy and so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't understand everything right and we can ask those kind of, deep questions of the text to to your point earlier, Tommy, about having a deep experience of the Bible in light of skeptical questions. um, It's a good thing to remember. You may not actually come up with a satisfying answer to the question. That doesn't mean that there's not an answer to it, right? You know, the example I use sometimes is that in science we have lots of questions that we don't know the answers to yet. It doesn't mean those things don't exist. Right. You know, is light. I'm sure this is out of date now because I'm not a physicist, but is light a particle or a wave? Oh, yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm not sure we do. It has characteristics of both. Right. Does that mean that light doesn't operate? No, of course it does. So. So just because we don't have the answers don't necessarily mean that there's not an answer.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. And I think that's an implication of some of the things that we've been talking about on the one hand there is this historical distance between me and the text. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can bridge that historical distance using my grammatical historical toolbox. Right. And sometimes, you know, I can't. Is that, does that indicate that the text is wrong? No, because on the other hand, the text is divinely authored and it was divinely authored for them and for me. And I have to respect that dualness of the text. It's dual audience. And that means I I might not know all the answers, but that doesn't invalidate the text.
0: Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. And I th- I think the more you look at these questions, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll I think we'll probably come to this conclusion as we're going through this series. You realize there are very very few passages actually I think where you can't come up with an interesting, uh, even to me satisfying yeah. answer resolution. So it's good. It's it's good to realize that there's not a ton of passages where we walk away saying, I just don't know, but there are some. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, that's what we should expect. If the Bible is what it says it is, and if the God of the Bible is who he says he is. Lastly, I'd end with this. Um, One of the kinds of questions that we're going to deal with, I think, Will find their resolution in a very you know, perhaps boring or mundane answer, and that I think there are going to be some questions that people bring. I hear them pretty regularly, where someone says, "I just can't believe that this could happen. It's too amazing. I don't think God could call up a storm out of nowhere and make it rain, or I don't. I don't believe axe heads could float, you know, or I don't believe that the flood could cover the entire world." Okay, that's one of the texts we'll probably deal with.
2: The star The sun stops.
0: Yeah. All right. I think we have to remember who the God of the Bible is and who he says he is. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of Christians stumble over is they actually forget who the God of the Bible is. They start to think he's kind of like those other pagan gods. He's like Zeus or he's like Baal up on his mountain with Mm -hmm. his thunderbolt in his hand. And he's caught up in the intrigue of the day, just like we are. And we forget the God of the Bible is the God who created it all. He's mm-hmm. the only one who's non contingent. Everything else is contingent on him and he made it all. He created it all and he sustains it all. And I honestly, sometimes the answer to some of the questions is because the God of the Bible can do things like that. Yep. Now I'm not saying that answers all this text that I just brought up, but it's a good thing as we're going into this. I remember Vern Poitras reminded me of this when we were up visiting in Westminster. Um, the God of the Bible can do all kinds of things. And that always needs to be something that is in your back pocket when you're answering these questions. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who, what his character is. Cause he's not like those other gods.
1: And I think so many of those, like I can't possibly believe that it's because of our own cultural context and conditions. Yeah, that's I, right. I got to confess that I've been Westernized and I get desensitized with respect to all the miraculous acts in the old Testament, let's say, yeah. but every time I'm back home in Jakarta and I meet, you know, some random visitor at our church, and They're like, isn't it amazing that God could do that? And I'm like, oh yeah, He does do that, uh, you know. And right. it, the the whole spiritual aspect of the Bible is no no problem at all for these guys. Yeah. What they have an issue with, let's say, is why would God forgive David? Mm-hmm. That's what they would have a, yeah. an yeah. issue with immediately. How why doesn't can you God forgive just judge somebody him? like that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right.
0: That's great. That's a good point. Yeah. Reminding us that this is a cross-cultural work. It was in right. the ancient world and it is today. And what is common sense for a modern Western American may not be common sense Right. for the rest. As a matter of fact, I can, I can, I can confidently tell you it's not going to be common sense for the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. you know, and we have to remember that. So when we're sitting down with the text, we have to be not only aware of what the text is bringing to the table culturally in terms of its cultural captivity, yeah. but what we're bringing to get to the table in our cultural yeah. captivity as well. Well, brothers, I look forward to having this conversation with you all, and uh, we'll dive in to text. Next uh, next week, tough text. Can tough we, text. Yeah, can we get like a...
1: A jingle or something? Like a
0: jingle or... A, tough text. Or a logo. A logo? I'll, I'll, work, on uh, I'll yeah. work on it. I'll work on it. Okay, good. But this was on yeah. video. I want a, I want a tough, tough text, text to fly towards the yeah. screen every time someone says it. <laughs> okay, yeah. so we'll, we'll delve into those next week. Look forward to having that conversation. Until then, everyone, please take care. If you'd be interested in continuing a conversation like this at Reformed Theological Seminary, come check us out on our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can find a link there to start the conversation on admissions so that you can uh, enroll in classes and take classes here with us. If you'd like to know more about RTS in general, go to rts.edu. You can learn about the larger organization, that 50-year project that I keep talking about um, around the, uh, the United States training pastors and church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. We'd love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to see you in our halls. We'd love to have you in our classes. Thanks. Take care. Was that okay? Tough yeah. text.
2: I don't know if it should it be like tough text or should we do like the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday.
3: <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> like Big Wheel? That sounds like a monster truck type Yeah, the thing monster truck
2: Voice
0: over. Yeah. Watch Gray Sutanto take on modernism. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Bring <laughs> your kids with an over. Today, the, yeah. Ur of the Counties. <laughs> yes. Peter Lee takes on historical Hebrew. I do like the tough tongue. I think I'm thinking Wayne's World totally in my head. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that's what, that's <laughs> what's going on. in <laughs> Alright.